I'm so thankful for our Stephen ministry here. Uh, again, they're in the back to explain more about that important ministry. Not if you need a Stephen minister, but when you need a Stephen minister, because there will come a time where that support will be a blessing to you. So check that out on your way out as a resource for you or maybe someone that you know. Uh, as many of you know, today will be my last Sunday before I take a sabbatical for this uh, summer, and I'll be returning back on September 1st. Uh, the elders have a policy which allows the NBC lead pastors to take a sabbatical every seven years, and so I'm really thankful for their support. I first became a pastor back in 2002, uh, 21 years ago, and the truth is I have never had a period of rest uh, where I decided to cease producing and stop working in the ministry of the Lord. And while I love being a pastor, I'm aware that the burdens that a pastor carries uh, with pastoral counseling, pastoral care, funerals, prayer, and other ministry responsibilities are very real and can be heavy. And so during this time, I will put my work down. And I will focus not on the work of the Lord, but on the Lord of the work. And I'm focused on rest and renewal and recharging both with the Lord and with my family. I'm eager to answer the call of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 6, where he said to his disciples, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. A sabbatical is a time to recenter on the Lord, to be closer with Jesus, not to work for him, but to be with him, to just be with God. And it's also a time uh, to be just a husband to my wife, Julie, and just to be a dad to my girls, Michaela and Felicity, and Alex and my son-in-law, Tim. Fortunately, we have a pastoral leadership team here, which makes a sabbatical a lot more practical in our context. And so together, Pastor Bob and I have strategized how to manage all of the church ministries in my absence, and I'm confident that Pastor Bob, uh, a very capable uh, pastor, and the rest of the ministry leadership team, and the elders and the staff are fully capable to lead and manage all of the work at MBC. You are in great hands, and I'm confident that this will be a good summer at MBC, an awesome summer at MBC. So there's two things I'd like you to keep in mind. Uh, first, please pray. I will be praying for you, and I would ask that you be praying for me in return in a way uh, that is uh, uh, lifting me up before the Lord when you think of me. Pray that I will return in a way that's healthy for me and for our mission together. Secondly, please pray for our church. And please invest yourself and continue to invest yourself in our church during this time. Uh, it would be a real loss if some of you decided that you were going to take a break too. Uh, there's plenty of good mission and good ministry to be done here this summer. And you are called to continue investing your time and investing your financial resources and investing your energy here to help build up this body. And so once again, thank you as a congregation to, for allowing me to take this time I really look forward to being with you again when I return. I love you very much. Uh, we're going to have a prayer time together at the end of the service. Uh, but before that, one last sermon. Uh, so today we continue in our series, Choose Joy, in the book of Philippians. Please turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. And I can't think of a more perfect passage to have for my final message. Uh, I didn't plan it this way, but the Lord in his providence and in his sovereignty uh, uh, orchestrated these things. And so today what I'd like to do is start just by reading the passage uh, for you, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dive in. And so uh, why don't you stand, if you're able, in honor of God's Word as we look at today's passage from Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Hear the Word of the Lord. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Uh, We come to you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and we thank you that this is a light unto our feet, a lamp unto our path. Thank you for this beautiful church. I ask your blessing on your people today and for you to teach us what you have from your holy and inspired and inerrant word. And now with every head bowed and every eye closed, I would just invite you now in your own heart to pray for God to speak to you in this sermon and just say, God, would you please teach me something right now? And if you would just also silently pray for me that the Lord would use me today and that I would be helpful. God, use this time for your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. You may be seated. Let me begin with this quote from the movie Saving Private Ryan. Have I been a good man? Have I lived a good life? The question was asked by an old man through tears of doubt as he kneels beside a cross in the cemetery at Normandy. The cross marks the grave of another man who had gave his life 60 years earlier for the man who now kneels at the grave. In that war, Private James Ryan was the fourth son of a woman who had already lost three sons in World War II, and military regulations said that she should not have to lose a fourth son. And so Captain John Miller, played by Tom Hanks, takes a squad of eight men to go and save Private Ryan. But all eight of the squad members are killed in the process of saving him, including Captain John Miller, whose dying words to Private Ryan are these, earn this, earn this. So then in the movie, we flash forward 60 years to the 80-year-old still trying to be worthy of the tremendous sacrifice that was given on his behalf. I mean, what would it even mean to live a life worthy of that level of sacrifice? Actually, Captain John Miller expressed it, er, John Miller expressed it earlier in the film, uh, saying, he better be worth it. The one we save, he better go home and cure a disease or invent a longer-lasting light bulb or something. And so that at the end of his life, we see the 80-year-old Ryan on his knees asking, was I worth it? Am I worthy Let me ask you a question. What does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? That's what Philippians 1, 27 to 30 is about. What are we called to be in Christ for our world? What should we look like? What does Jesus call us to? In addition, what does the world need to see from us? What is it that we're called to be as followers of the Lord Jesus? Friends, there's no more important time to ask this question than right now. Ours is a generation where everything nailed down seems to be coming loose. Things that we thought would never happen are happening. And thoughtful people are asking these questions. What kind of a man, what kind of a woman does it take 
to make an impact on a world like ours, on a culture like ours? The answer to that question is in Philippians 1, 27 to 30. I've titled the message simply, Living as Citizens of Heaven. Last week, we discussed Paul's own circumstances, but here in this section, these small four verses, Paul pivots from a focus on his own circumstances to now directing his attention to the circumstances of his audience the believers at the church of Philippi. And here we will see as we go through four key attributes of heavenly citizenship. Watch for them as we go. Start with me in verse 21 as it stands as an overarching verse for the whole passage. Again, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Notice a few things right here. First, notice that word only. It's the Greek word manon. Karl Barth said it's as if Paul lifted up one finger and said, I just want one thing from you. Everybody hold up one finger. Just one thing. As he will say later in chapter 3, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead, one thing. The word only here signifies that this exhortation to come is all-encompassing, meaning you can summarize the whole entire Christian life with verse 27 of chapter 1 of the book of Philippians, living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is our calling. Everything you do, whether, it's you, whether, whether you eat or whether you drink, whether you walk or whether you live, it's always to be according to the gospel of Christ. Now, remember, what is the gospel? Well, Doug already articulated this perfectly in the call to worship today, but just as a reminder, this is what we celebrated on Easter, that the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, who is equal with God, became a human being, lived a perfect life, died as a substitute for sinners, and rose again so that by union with him... All who believe will be counted righteous with Christ's righteousness, saved from destruction, and we now belong to Christ forever, ensure and certain hope of the resurrection. This is the good news of the gospel. But, but, everybody say but. But, keep in mind the entire gospel. Keep in mind that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. H.B. Charles says it this way, it is the will of God to have the spirit of God use the word of God to make the children of God look like the son of God. Jen Wilkin says it perfectly, and I've shared this quote before, but it bears repeating. Listen to what she says. She says, don't reduce gospel-centered to justification-centered. The good news is more than our freedom from sin's penalty. It is also our progression from sin's power and our ultimate freedom from sin's presence. Justification, sanctification, and glorification are all the gospel. Justification is good news, but sanctification is also good news. Brothers and sisters, justification is the good news that you are saved from the penalty of your sin, but sanctification is the good news that you do not have to live in your sin anymore. Next, going back to that verse from chapter 1, notice this phrase that Paul uses here, let your manner of life be. For you technical people, this is the only verb in the entire section of our text today. However, this verb actually does not have an English equivalent. If you've ever learned another language, you know sometimes some things don't translate, which is why so many translations use different words here in chapter 1, verse 27. Sometimes it says, let your conversation be. Other translations say, let your conduct be. Or here we have, let your manner of life be. But I fear that all of these translations may hide the full meaning of Paul's image here. It's the Greek word, palatuma. And here you see the root of our English word, politics. Polis was the Greek word for city. The idea behind this word is the idea of citizenship. Let your politics be worthy of the gospel, but better, let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel. The phrase literally means to discharge your obligations as citizens. It carries this idea that your personal behavior will be governed by your citizenship. 
As a technical note, Paul does not use this word in any other letter to any other church in any of the other books in the New Testament, only right here. There's a very specific reason why he uses it right here. Because the background that you need to know is that in 42 BC, the city of Philippi was given colonial status by the Roman Empire. It was a commonwealth. Now, here in America, we understand what commonwealths are. There are territories that we have, like Puerto Rico, places that do not necessarily have statehood, but people born there enjoy all the benefits of United States citizenship by birth, including full freedom of travel and movement within the continental United States and certain tax exemptions. Like that, the city of Philippi was a commonwealth of the Roman Empire. Its members enjoyed the benefits of Roman citizenship. There was a, there was a high, high, high value in Roman citizenship in those days. People paid a lot of money to become Roman citizens. Just think about how valuable your citizenship is. I remember one time, as a family, we were traveling in Mexico, and we accidentally misplaced that really important document that you're supposed to keep in order to get you back home. I can't remember the name of that document, but we, we, we misplaced it. Well, that was a little scary, but to prove that we were citizens, of course, we still had our, our, our passport, and, and we, we were, because of that, we were able to replace everything, and they let us back in, and, and the reason why is because we were able to prove that we were citizens of the United States of America, and I was grateful for my citizenship on that day. I like Mexico to visit. I want to live here. Just like that, Roman citizenship in those days was a passport to access. It was a passport to opportunity. It was a passport to a better life. It gave all the citizens certain rights and privileges as a result. The benefits were many. Paul was a Roman citizen. You might remember Paul is writing in prison. In those days, you could, for years, wait for your case to go to trial, especially if you were not a citizen. Non-citizens would face a much more difficult reality in the court of law, including beatings, including being robbed by guards, including malnourishment. But Paul was a Roman citizen. And so he was treated well. Here he's actually writing while he's on house arrest. We read about that in Acts 28. But even though he was a Roman citizen, he still had to provide for his own food, his own needs. Because of that, the church at Philippi sent him a financial gift. The point is, the people of Philippi were very conscious of their new status as citizens of Rome. And so in those days, they were proud to be a Philippian. Proud to be a Philippian. Thank you, Doug, for leading us and not asking me to lead uh, today. Let me give you a comparison. The family I married into is very Italian. We have it all. I'm German, but I am now an honorary Italian. We have homemade pasta. We have gabagool. We have fresh mozzarella. We have prosciutto. We got I am blessed to be part of an Italian family. And they are really proud of being Italian. When they meet other Italians, there's like an instant bond. Hey, paisan, you know how it is. It's like an identity marker. This is the way the Philippians would have felt in chapter 1. The status provided by Roman citizenship encouraged a sense of pride amongst Roman citizens. We're the Roman citizens, and we're better than everybody else. Here's what Paul is saying. You have a very special citizenship that you need to identify with, but it is not your citizenship in Philippi. Your primary citizenship is your citizenship in the kingdom of God. It is your citizenship in heaven. Friends, a Christian is someone who's had a change of citizenship from one homeland to another homeland. And so the implication here is that we should always live consciously of that fact. 
Friends, when you understand who you are, that you are a son of the king, a daughter of the king, that gives you your position, and your dignity is not in your earthly citizenship. Your dignity is not in your bank account. Your dignity is not in your looks. Your dignity is not in your educational title. No, your dignity is in your relationship to God, and your citizenship is in heaven. Don't let the devil de-dignify you. Don't let him reduce you to something other than what you've been created to be in Christ. Focus on God. Focus on his goodness that's running after you. Focus on his word, and there will be no room for the devil to override you because your citizenship has been given to you. It has been bestowed to you by God himself, and nothing can take away your citizenship in heaven. And now Paul says you should govern your life as someone who's a citizen of God's kingdom. You should behave in a way that's worthy of the gospel. Now let's look at that word, worthy. Worthy. Let your life be worthy of the gospel. Think of the gospel of Christ as the charter of your homeland, as the expectations of your citizenship of heaven. You might remember that movie, A Few Good Men. There were two Marines, Dawson and Downey, who were on trial because they beat up a fellow Marine, a fellow soldier. You might remember the charge against them in that movie was what? Conduct unbecoming of a Marine. Meaning, their behavior does not fit the way they do things in the Marines. In other words, there's a certain way Marines were expected to act, and their behavior was not in accordance with that standard. Now, go back to chapter 1. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. As a Christ follower, your behavior should fit a certain pattern. There is a way we do things in the kingdom of God, and your life ought to reflect that. Therefore, he says, live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, let's ask this question. What exactly does the word worthy mean here? Does it mean that I deserve the gospel? That cannot be the case because of so many other scriptures that say we cannot earn our worthiness for the gospel because of our sin. So if that's not it, what does it mean? Well, I want to look at another passage in another book of the Bible where the same word is used by the Lord Jesus. Take a look at Matthew chapter 10. It's a key passage to understand this word where Jesus is speaking and he says this, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now what is implied in being worthy of Jesus here? It means you, you value Jesus more than you value father or mother. Valuing Jesus with greater worth than even your closest family members. Therefore, what Paul means in Philippians is he means I am to live my life in such a way to show that the gospel and the Lord Jesus are more valuable, more worthy than anything else in my life. John Piper summarizes verse 27 really well. Piper says this, The all-encompassing summary of the Christian life is to live as citizens of heaven with the gospel at the center, showing by your life that the gospel is worth more to you than everything else in this world. So what will be the result of obeying this? What will it look like if I'm able to carry out the command of verse 27? Well, here in our passage, Paul gives us four results of this kind of commitment. And so he continues, live your lives worthy of the gospel so that, purpose clause, so that, the result will be so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in, this, in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now here... You're going to see four characteristics, four attributes. Let's look at them just one at a time. First, notice that phrase, standing firm. The term was a military posture of defense. Standing was the idea of feet planted, offering resistance, standing. 
In the ancient Greek culture, there was a military group known as the Spartans. They were a ruthless, fearsome battalion of soldiers. Their education was almost entirely focused on warfare from when they were little boys. There was no humanities classes. There was no home ec. There was no logic. There was no philosophy. Just military training. They perfected their method of warfare. And they had two things. Number one, they were very focused people. And number two, they also had unity. The Spartans used to fight with a sword and with a shield, and they used to say, my sword is for my enemy and my shield is for my brother. They fought as a unit and they stood firmly. Remember the Spartans, two things. They had focus and unity. The Navy SEALs are kind of like that. They're focused and they travel in packs. The early church was like that. They were united and they were focused and they stood firm. And as a result other people describe them of like this. Oh, these are the ones who are turning the whole world upside down. So that's our first characteristic. Brothers and sisters, if we want to be citizens of heaven, citizens of heaven stand firmly. Can we say that together? Citizens of heaven stand firmly. As a Christian, this means not being knocked down by any of your opponents or anything that comes against us. The enemy charges, you stand In the evil day, you stand. The cultural wind blows, you stand. It means to be totally unyielding. Stand firm. May I ask you, where is God calling you right now to take a stand? At work? At home? With your kids? With your grandkids? This past Wednesday, we had Bryce Hall, the cornerback of the New York Jets, come and share at Millington Baptist Church's youth group. And he talked about standing against the culture even as a professional athlete. Even if you have to be all alone, is what he told our teenagers. He's a great example of standing firm. Brothers and sisters, may we do the same. Ephesians chapter 6, Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. May we stand. Number two. Back to Philippians chapter 1, I want you to notice the second word here that really sticks out. It's that word striving. If standing firm was a defensive term, then striving is an offensive term. The word is soon athluntes. It means to contend for. In classical Greek, it was used to describe gladiatorial combat where the context was a life and death struggle. If you've ever seen that movie Gladiator, you remember the main character, General Maximus. Through a maze of events, Maximus goes from celebrated warrior favorite of one emperor to despised traitor, nemesis of another. He becomes a fugitive, then a caged slave, and then an unvanquished gladiator, striving valiantly. That's a good picture of this second characteristic as citizens of heaven. And here it is. Citizens of heaven strive valiantly. Can we say that together? Citizens of heaven strive valiantly. We are always striving. We are always moving. We are always heralding the gospel. We are always gaining ground. We are always going. Remember last week? Move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. Can I ask you something? Are you striving right now in your Christian life? There is no standing still in the Christian life. If you're standing still, you're going backwards. This word strive is actually where we get our English word athletics. Like Olympic athletes, strive really hard. But they do that for a relatively short event, right? They do that for a crown that fades. They do that, all that training. They put in all that effort for four years, all that discipline for what? For a perishable crown, for a medal, for a few short hours on a podium for some glory. 
in contrast, as Christians, we strive in our race for an imperishable crown that will last how long? Forever. Now, in light of that comparison, let me ask you this. How much more discipline, how much more striving should I have in my life? The Apostle Peter says it this way in chapter 2, in, in, in 2 Peter 2, 1, 5. He says this, for this reason, make every effort. Listen, after all that Christ has done for me, how dare I treat my Christian life like it's a walk in the park? Like I'm just going to stroll along. No, you've got to run. Paul says you've got to run the way the winners run. You've got to strive like you want to win. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel. May I ask you, are you coasting or are you striving valiantly in your spiritual life right now? Spiritual growth is not automatic. It takes effort. It takes exertion. The New Testament uses words like fight, strive, strain. We ought to toil, struggle, and labor. We are called to strive valiantly. Citizens of heaven, stand firmly. Citizens of heaven, strive valiantly. For the next characteristic, take a look back at the text in chapter 1 and notice three different terms where Paul says this, in one spirit, with one mind, and we do this side by side. These terms all communicate the same thing. They communicate unity. This is the idea of unity. It's a very important theme in this letter. We will learn later next week in chapter 2. Paul will say, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection in sympathy, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, being of one mind. And so, brothers and sisters, as citizens of heaven, we seek unity. Can we say that? Citizens of heaven seek unity. See, here's what we know. The Philippian church had a love for the Lord Jesus, and they had a love for the Apostle Paul. We've seen that in chapter 1 earlier. I thank my God every time I remember you. There was just one problem. They weren't very unified with each other. Later, we're going to see Paul actually naming some names, calling out Yodia and Sitiki to pursue unity. There was disunity. They had trouble getting along. You say, Pastor Dave, I don't understand. There was Christians who couldn't get along? That seems really hard to imagine. <laughs> these are the jokes, folks. These, these, these are, this is all I got. Not that hard to imagine, is it? Today we have the same problems. We have denominational skirmishes. We've got factions. We've got backbiting. We've got gossip. We've got unresolved issues. This is not good for the cause of the gospel. Paul says, as citizens of heaven, be of one spirit, be of one mind. Strive side by side. Now, question, how does unity precisely show the worthiness of the gospel? The answer is because the gospel severs the root of all disunity. Disunity is primarily caused at its root by selfishness and sin. But the gospel says we don't have to be selfish because all our needs are already met in Christ. Chapter 4, my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. If you don't believe that, then you will begin to use people to get what you want. However, if you really believe the gospel, you'll realize you don't have to use people because you have everything that you need already in Christ. See, what happens in the flesh is we live for ourselves and we use people because we love things. But in the gospel, everything is reversed. Because of the gospel, we live for God and we use things in order to love people. And then in Christ, we can begin to look first not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. So how do we seek unity? I like the way Greg Gilbert says it. He says this, unity lives where self-regard dies, and self-regard dies at the foot of the cross. We're going to talk much more about that in chapter 2. 
However, here I want you to see that this unity that we are called to have is both caused by and glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. Going back to that movie Gladiator, Maximus's growing fame in the arena brings him to the sports pinnacle, Rome's magnificent Colosseum, to face her elite warriors. The games open with a reenactment of the Battle of Carthage. The gladiators, all foot soldiers, are cast as the hapless Carthaginians. It was a stage set for slaughter. They're marched out a dark passageway into the brilliant, blinding sunlight and met with a roar of bloodlust from the crowd. Maximus, their leader, shouts out to his men, Stay together! He assembles them in a tight circle in the center of the arena, back to back, shields aloft, spears facing outward. Then he shouts again, Whatever comes out of that gate, stay together! What comes out of that gate is swift, sleek, and full of terror. Chariot upon chariot, thunder forth, war horses pull with deadly agility and earth-shaking strength. Wagons are driven by master charioteers, and Amazonian warrior princesses ride behind with deadly precision, hurl spears and volley arrows. And then one gladiator strays from the circle, ignoring Maximus' orders, but he is quickly cut down. Maximus shouts out once more, stay together! Their instinct to scatter is so strong, but Maximus asserts his authority and they resist that impulse. And then the chariots begin to circle their circle closer and closer and closer. Spears and arrows rain down on the men's wooden shields. And just when the chariots are about to cinch the knot, right then Maximus shouts, Now! Then the gladiators attack back and decimate the Romans. Why? Because they stayed together. Brothers and sisters, like them, we need to stay together, to be of one spirit, to be of one mind, to strive side by side. This echoes what Jesus prayed for his church in John 17. May they be brought to complete unity. And he promises that like that, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. But friends, we need each other to stand. God has designed sanctification in such a way that you cannot do it alone. Some of you You're in danger because you're going out there alone. We need each other. Some of you, the most Christian thing that you're going to do this week is not to read a Christian book. It's not even going to be to read your Bible. It's not even going to be to pray. It's going to be you're going to find another Christian brother or sister and reach out to them and confess saying, there's some stuff in my life that I need to expose to you. I remember... In my first accountability group, one of the exercises was to write each other a a screw tape letter from the perspective of a demon written to yourself. How would you tempt yourself if you were given the task as one of the devils of hell? And so we wrote these letters, and then we read these letters out loud to each other. That was humiliating and terrible for the reputation, but good for the soul. Brothers and sisters, I want that for you. I want that for our whole church. One of God's greatest gifts to us is us. I have seen so many Christians that have so much biblical knowledge, but it is not about what we know in our heads that makes the difference. It's people who are real. It's people who are authentic with their brothers and sisters who refuse to struggle alone. Friends, your purity will come in community. Your victory will come in community. Your sanctification will come in community. 
And how does pursuing unity put on display the gospel of Christ? Jesus himself said, this would be the mark of all of my disciples. John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. This is how people know that we're Christians. Therefore, seeking unity and living in unity is living a life worthy of the gospel. This was the reputation of the early church. For example, there was an early church apologist named Athenagoras who asked the emperor to consider whether he had seen anyone suffer like the Christians. He described the demeanor of Christians this way, as unlettered people, if you go to the next slide, please, unlettered people, tradesmen and old women who, though unable to express in words the advantages of our teaching, demonstrate by acts the value of their principles. For they do not rehearse speeches, but evidence good deeds. When struck, they do not strike back. When robbed, they do not sue. To those who ask, they give, and they love their neighbors as themselves. And they're like, who are these people? Brothers and sisters, may we have this reputation once again. Citizens of heaven, stand firmly. Citizens of heaven, strive valiantly. Citizens of heaven, seek unity. Back to our text for characteristic number four. Notice Paul says this, citizens of heaven are not to be frightened. We conduct ourselves in a manner appropriate to the gospel of Christ when we are living fearlessly. How does fearlessness exactly show worthiness of the gospel? In the context of Philippians, it means they're not afraid to be more bold in their witness. Remember from chapter one? It means they're not afraid of loss, chapter 3. It means they can experience loss because they've learned the secret to being content in all circumstances, chapter 4. And how is that possible? Because of the gospel. We don't fear loss because of the gospel. We don't fear suffering because of the gospel. And so that's our final characteristic today. Citizens of heaven suffer fearlessly. Can we say that together? Citizens of heaven You know, even Paul experienced opposition and fear. There was a time in Corinth when he was preaching there. They opposed him. He was afraid. And God himself came and spoke to him in chapter 18. You should look at this. God God said to him, Paul, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. Let those words from God resonate with you today. Hang in there. Your citizenship is not of this world. You're part of another kingdom. And actually, your kingdom, your citizenship is greater than theirs is. 1 Peter chapter 3 has a parallel passage. Peter says this, Even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that, that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. What do they ask? What is this hope that you have? And then tell them, I have the hope of the Lord Jesus, and do that with gentleness and respect. And so being fearless in the face of these things and standing and striving no matter what happens, if we will live like this, that is going to be how the gospel is shown to be beautiful. In fact, when you do this, Paul continues by saying this in verse 28, back to Philippians 1. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. The term sign here was used in the Greek court of law meaning evidence, proof, meaning when you stand firm, then those on the outside will see your courage and faithfulness and look into your eyes and in your resolution, they will somehow perceive their own doom. How is living like this a sign to those who don't believe and their destruction? 
That word destruction is used again in Philippians 3, where Paul says, their end is their destruction. Their God is their belly. Their mind is set on earthly things. Physical things are their great rewards. These physical things have become their God. They would never refer to them as their God, but they are functionally serving as their God. But then when they run into people like you who are not threatened, who are not frightened, sorry, who are not frightened when you are threatened with the loss of those same exact earthly things, when you're threatened with death or imprisonment or losses, losses of those things that serve as their God and you don't collapse in the face of such loss, it implies that those things that they worship don't make very good gods. Those things are not sovereign. Those things are not worthy. Those things are not all-powerful. You are showing that there's a more powerful name, that there's a name that is above every name, that one name is higher and one name is stronger, and it's the name of Jesus Christ, and you worship him. And that destruction is on, their, on its way for their God if they don't turn away from their God. The destruction's also on the way to them. Therefore, living like this is a strong sign of destruction to those on the outside. It's a demonstration. It's a proving. It's a sign. It's proof that the God of this world is a weak God and that Jesus is a much more worthy God. But not only is it a sign, not only is it a sign to those on the outside, Notice Paul says this is also a sign for you on the inside. Because if you can withstand this suffering, it will prove to you that your own faith is genuine. It's a sign of your salvation. It's a sign of confirmation to see that you're one of God's children. When you suffer for Jesus, let that be a sign to you that you belong to him. Now, as a caveat, Paul is not saying that if I suffer as a result of my own sinful choices and my own dumb decisions, that that's a sign of being God's child. That's, that's not the kind of suffering he's talking about here. We're, we're talking about being persecuted and suffering for righteousness' sake. That's a sign. This is par for the course for those of us who follow the Lord Jesus. Remember, Lord Jesus said in Luke 6, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. It's very unlikely that anybody who claimed to have a commitment to Christ and the gospel in the first century would be actually inauthentic and endure the kind of physical and emotional pain that persecution would bring them. Because once the suffering started, well, their commitment would end. And then those who had ulterior motives, that deception that they were engaging in would, would, would disappear. It wouldn't pay off. So they would jump ship. However, those who remained would receive assurance that their faith was real and genuine. Oh, we find this elsewhere in the New Testament. Take a look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul says this, therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is what? Evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy, there's that word worthy, worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. That word evidence keeps showing up. It's a sign. It's evidence. It's proof that your faith is real, and those opponents of yours are false. So let me say this carefully but truthfully. For this reason, as Christians, it is biblical to say that even persecution can be seen as a gift from God. Look at the text, verses 29 and 30, basically tell us this. Paul says, for it has been granted to you, granted is the Greek word charis, where we get our word grace. It's, it's, a, it's a grace to you. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Imagine viewing suffering as a gift. That's a paradigm shift. 
In the book of Acts, though, when they were persecuted, it says in chapter 5, they rejoiced because God had found them worthy to suffer for his name. Paul says, this is the same exact conflict that you already saw in me. Now, what is he referring to? You might remember in Acts chapter 16, this is what happened to Paul in Philippi. It says, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods, and they had been severe, after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. This is what the church members at Philippi saw in Paul's life. You saw this in me. And he says, now you're involved too. You're engaging in the same thing that I was engaging with and still am engaging with. Right now, I'm back in jail again, now a different place. Now I'm in jail in Rome. But don't be discouraged. This is a sign from God of your salvation and their destruction. So take heart. God is sovereignly, providentially in charge and bringing you to exactly where he wants you to be, even if it means you depart and go be with Christ, for to live is Christ and to die is gain. The early Christians were very firm, very courageous under fire, and those on the outside took special notice. In fact, there was a doctor in the second century who used to examine the bodies of the martyrs in the Colosseum. This was a pagan Roman doctor. His name was Claudius Gallinus, a second century physician. And he writes this, For fearlessness of death and the hereafter is something we witness in them every day. The early church Christians maintain an amazing testimony under fire. And make no mistake, those on the outside took notice. May God give us courage. Johnny Moore, who's done so much Christian mission work, specifically in Syria over the last few years, recently wrote a book called Defying ISIS. And in that book, he asked this haunting question. He says, regarding us in the United States, why are we so unwilling to live for what they are willing to die for? Why are we so willing to live for what they are willing to die? Isn't it the same Jesus? Isn't it the same Bible? Isn't it the same faith? I submit to you the answer is yes, we just don't understand what they understood. Jesus is worth more than we think he is. The gospel is worth more than we think it is. Knowing God is worth more than we think it is. It's worth everything. There's nothing more valuable. Do I really believe that? Do you really believe that? Jesus said it this way, the kingdom of God is like a treasure. It's been hidden in a field and a man would sell everything he has to get that with joy to get that treasure, his clothes, his house, his animals, everything just to get that treasure. May we like him serve joyfully and fearlessly for the kingdom of God. This is living a life worthy of the gospel. This is being a citizen of heaven. In the first century, the strongest words a person could utter were, Civis Romanus Sum. What does it mean? I am a Roman citizen. You could, according to legend, walk the length and breadth of the known world protected only by those three words. I am a Roman citizen. But the Roman status that you had also gave you rights and privileges as well as responsibilities and duties. For example, if you were asked to participate in something despicable, you could simply respond with civis Romanus sum. I am a Roman citizen. That's beneath me. I live by a higher standard. You were better than that. Brothers and sisters, as citizens of Christ's kingdom, there is no higher calling on your life. 
the duty that you have and the charge on your life is something deeper and greater than any earthly citizenship. You're a citizen of the heavenly city, and therefore you should conduct your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. One of the joys of serving at NBC is I see how our people are attempting to do this together. And this summer, as I take a sabbatical for a few months, I'm going to miss you all. But here's my exhortation to you while I'm gone. Conduct your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. And how do we do that? How do we live lives worthy of the gospel? Citizens of heaven stand firmly. Citizens of heaven strive valiantly. Citizens of heaven suffer fearlessly. Citizens of heaven seek unity. This is how we impact our world for Christ. Can you imagine a church full of people committed to that? Let's be that church. Let me invite the worship team to come to lead us in one more song, and as they do, let me go back to that movie, Saving Private Ryan. The good news of the gospel is that the last words of the Lord Jesus Christ were not, earn this. The last words of the Lord Jesus Christ were, it is finished. Because of the gospel, you are made worthy through faith alone, not by your merits, but by God who gave you his merits on your behalf. So your life is not about earning your worthiness before God, but about God who makes you worthy by his spirit at work inside of you. Not so that you would be crushed by the guilt of always falling short, but rather so that you might turn your attention and remember the one who is crushed on your behalf. And now having placed your faith in him and having been made a citizen of heaven by Christ himself, now what you want to do with your life is just to live a life that is pleasing to him, not by your works, but by his work and his spirit powerfully at work inside of you. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling, pressing on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of you. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Can we pray? God, thank you so much for rescuing us from not just the penalty of sin, but also from the presence of sin. And one day, uh, we look forward to being perfected and glorified in your presence. Until then, Lord, may we stand firmly and may we strive valiantly and may we suffer fearlessly and may we seek unity for God's glory and for our good. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.